0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode number 38, I'm speaking with Regina Jones, Regina is the Chief Legal Officer at Baker Hughes. And what a marvellous discussion. You know, sometimes when you meet people for the first time, it doesn't take long at all to develop a connection. And secondly, you see very, very quickly why they're super successful. And that's exactly what happened in my discussion with Regina. That became apparent right at the outset why she's been such a super hit. And um, there's a couple of superpowers we've called out during the course of the show, particularly her ability, because she's got a technical or technology background, her ability to bring that into the role as a general counsel, you can see, is um, super, super impressive. Lots of things that we talked about. We started um, with some of her early formative experience and how the Enron scandal impacted her and what she learned from that, right through to the principles and values that uh, she holds dear to her pers- herself personally as well as at Baker Hughes and we also talk a little bit about uh, what keeps her up at night. Um, it's a fantastic discussion. One thing that I'll call out that she talks about being bold and authentic and that's certainly something that Regina is, bold and authentic. I had a marvellous time, I'm sure you will too. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Regina Jones, fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. This is going to be great fun. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Thank you, Jim. I am as well, and I'm honoured to be here, so thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to us having a lively chat today.
0: Oh, That's going to happen, Regina. I can feel it already. Now, set the scene a little bit for the audience. Tell us a little bit about the Regina Jones story. You didn't go straight into law. There was a bit of a journey there. I'd love to learn a bit about that journey and what got you interested into law in those early days.
1: Yeah, so from the time I was a child, a little girl, literally, which was a very long time ago, yeah. I have always been interested in the law. I've always wanted to be... I started off as a little girl wanting to be a criminal prosecutor for obvious reasons intrigued by shows like Nancy Drew. Yeah, of course. But as I grew older... My dad, quite frankly, wanted me to move into a career where I could support myself because I also have always had very high expensive habits, if you will. (laughs) And so when I was graduating, he really was talking me out of the criminal prosecutor route because quite frankly, he didn't think I'd be able to sustain my (sighs) livelihood. So with that, I ended up I did go to law school second, but I started off with my undergrad graduate degree in general business with a minor in computer science. Um, I love technology. So I interned in uh, information technology roles when I was in undergrad. And then when I graduated, I started working in information technology. So I worked in IT for at least six, maybe even closer to 10 years before I moved into legal. And the way I did that is because I was working with a few companies and at the time, that was when educational reimbursement was a big deal. And so there there were educational reimbursement programs where they would basically pay 100% or somewhere between 80 and 100% for you to go to postgraduate school. So I decided to go to law school at night while I worked full time and have my company pay for it, which I um, at the time I worked with El Paso Energy, and then I started working for Shell, and yep. they paid for my law school. And when upon graduating, though, I still te- stayed in the technology field for a couple years because that was when dot com was cool; technology was way sexier than law. Yeah. And then the bubble burst, and at that point, I said, "Well, maybe I should shift to Plan B, which is being <laughs> a lawyer." And so you, then you had the
0: up. you had the backup you had the exactly. you had the law backup nice, mm-hmm. nice
1: and it worked out it's paid off for me well but I will tell you my biggest edge has been the fact that I have a a great understanding of technology and I love it so I'd apply I apply the same principles that I learned being an information technology perspective in my practice of the law and it's actually worked very well for me and and in the current environment it's a very complementary skill set to have.
0: Yeah, I'd love to do a deeper dive in there. So, so there's so much I want to unpack, but the the notion of a tech savvy, a seriously tech savvy lawyer, and now chief legal officer—that is a powerful combination, uh, Regina. We don't see that a lot, I have to say. So tell me about a little bit about how that kind of background, how that has helped you. What, what is it about the thinking or the process that has uh, has given you an edge? a superpower, if I can call it that, because that's what, that's what it kind of feels like to me.
1: Yes, well, I'm all for superpowers, and I'll be yep. honest with you, I think technology acumen in the current day and age really is a differentiator. So yeah. a couple of, there's probably two dynamics I'll mention. One is obviously in the era of cyber, in the yep. area of data, in the era of also just understanding electronic aspects of data and technology all the way down to e-discovery, The understanding just kind of how the nuts and bolts work in relation to systems is a fundamentally, I think, helps me to really appreciate and have an understanding of not just the gravity of the issues, but what typical things can give rise to the issue and what some of the impacts are of needing to make transformational change when technology is at play. Yeah. But the second thing, and actually what I think is the most differentiating, is the fact that when you're in IT, you think analytically about problems, and you also think about them in the context of a business perspective, because any idea that come, that someone comes up with to come up with a solution that can be enabled by technology, you first have to start with beginning with the end in mind. So what are we really trying to accomplish? And then you have to kind of unpack that to get to now, what is the right solution? You have to contemplate it from both sides, the user experience, as well as the underlying technology setup and infrastructure. And you also have to have the ability to project manage it from beginning to end. So it causes you to look at legal issues and unpack them from a business perspective. What are the business objectives that are trying to be accomplished? What are now the drivers that have triggered this event? And then you go one by one to say, okay, now how do I turn this into a solution? And so case in point, let's say your computer's not working. So what do you do? You start going through a process of now just blocking off the things that could be causing the problem, all the way to... Did you turn it off and turn it back on? Is it plugged <laughs> in? Did you what were you doing at the time it occurred? So it helps you think analytically in a differentiated way and it yeah. also helps you understand the need to be able to translate technical jargon into simple English. And that is a skill set that has really helped a lot because most people don't want to hear the link, the legal explanation. They want to hear the practical business explanation. So I'd yep. say those are the few things that have really stood out for me.
0: And, and I love some of those features, especially the well, the analytical thinking, the user experience, which which is so key. And using that in the context of today, where we're all we're all being faced with high expectations, given where where we're experiencing technology in our own personal lives, we're really, we've got high expectations of how it's going to help us now in our business lives. Um, So I'd be interested to know, are you finding that also too in the context of legal?
1: You mean the, how it impacts you personally as well as professionally? Professionally, yeah. I
0: I mean, I I, I think about sometimes the um, uh, demands of lawyers of legal technology and the expectations lawyers have about how, Legal technology will work, and their expectations are high. Um, or, and uh, I, I think that's a combination of um, uh, seeing what exists in our in our consumer lives, social right. lives, um, and also I think it's probably a combination of um, typically lawyers haven't in the past spent a lot of time um, on technology, so they're not perhaps as patient. Um, but I'd love to get your perspective.
1: So that's a great question. I love that question. And for a couple of reasons, one, because I love technology. And so for me, I'm always looking at now, how can we challenge ourselves to look at how we can leverage technology to be better? So, you know, whether it's the concept of better, faster, smarter. So obviously everyone looks at technology as a potential automation tool where you take transactional work and now automate it so that now you can spend your time thinking. So that's a common rationale for why technology is good. But when you really look at now moving to the level of now legal intelligence and how can I basically take data, start looking at trends start doing analysis and using my time to probe and to think in a differentiated way because I'm able to now process prior to me having to think about it. So you don't have to come up with now the incremental steps to get you to an end. You can basically put in variables and you can start doing scenario analysis and what if analysis in minutes where it would have taken you, lots of time and energy to try to come up with different scenarios and different outcomes. So if we're able to use technology, not just in that way, but also you can use it now to automate things and leverage it to create artificial intelligence. So when you're, whether it be standard contract terms and conditions where now you're yep. able to take them and put them together in more meaningful ways and look at risk trends across the organization and identify where you may have gaps and processes that, you didn't know existed or leverage it for internal audits. And so now just the capabilities that can be brought to the table, if you're really open to thinking and doing things differently and letting technology enable your processes versus looking at it as just a tool you have to use to push out a document in a readable red line form. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Regina, I'm thinking to myself as you're speaking. I'm thinking, what's it like being part of Regina's team? What, what's it like? What, what's the senior legal leadership team? Are they, do they quake in their boots when, when they're coming in and thinking, okay, have we thought through how technology, for example, is impacting what we do? I mean, I just I love the structured and, and the, the thinking that you're putting to the problems that you're solving. And I'm wondering, what is it like to be part of the team? And how does your team, when they're Presenting How do they prepare when they're presenting to you, when you, they're going through ideas, when they're looking for the next, uh, whether it's a transformational or it's an incremental improvement, how are they doing that?
1: Okay, so besides the fact that you need to ask them, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a, there's a few things there. So one is I'll tell you what I hope.
0: Yep. Right. Yeah, so let's, let's, start the, let's start with let's start with a hope. I, I exactly. love that. Yep. yep.
1: And hope is a good thing. It's not a strategy, but <laughs> no,
0: it's no, It's not.
1: So, yep. um, one is I hope they enjoy and look forward to the engagement that yeah. they'll have as a member of the team. I hope that they look at working at the opportunity to work with me and a member of the team and as a member of the team as an opportunity for them to thrive. So I say at least to myself that I think my job is to work for them more so than them working for me. I think it's really important that I lead through making sure others are successful. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. So I hope that they feel engaged I hope that they feel that they can actually come to the table and be a change agent. Now, I still have to remember that I'm working with lawyers, and lawyers are paid to be lawyers, and they're paid to challenge. They are paid to... And I don't want to speak negatively of their profession, but not always to be innovative, meaning some lawyers you want innovative. Maybe it's in the IT part of the business, but other lawyers, you need just practical solutions and understanding of legal issues and risks. They don't really need to be innovators. They just need to get to the outcomes. So it's having a balance. I try to meet people where they are. And to oftentimes, particularly with lawyers, a lot of it is about helping them understand the value, what's in it for me, why I need to make this investment in technology, and it's showing them as well the art of possible. So by starting in places where the returns are easier to digest, that oftentimes now creates a framework where other lawyers, I want something like that. And sometimes it's just as simple as just if we put all of our contracts in one place, then you can find them. And not only can you find them, you can find them within like 10 seconds. And on top of that, you can find all of your historical agreements as well. So you can actually see what some of your trends are in relation to it. And so then folks start seeing the value of reporting and dashboards and metrics and performance indicators. So then they want now more examples of how they can apply that. And then the final thing I'll say is what they're also able to see is that it's a lot easier to articulate the value that they deliver because now instead of having conversations about just pure legal issues, they're having broader conversations with their internal clients around now trends. The legal portfolio, exposure analysis across the board, and now influencing strategic decisions even because they're bringing information and data that others might not otherwise have. So I hope as a member of the team, they're able to see the art of possible. They're able to see the role that they can play in helping to shape the future and the strategy of the company and the value that they bring as a member of the team. That's what I hope.
0: And there's a couple things I'd love to unpack. There, the mm-hmm. um, uh, your last comment about being able to then um, take the data and speak to the business about trend analysis, about metrics, yeah. about um, what's what's perhaps coming over the horizon. That's got to be a much better place mm-hmm. um, for you as a business partner to to put yourself. That position to put yourself in that must be much better than simply advising at the, let's say the historical risk or the a future risk without uh, without being armed with that data. So presumably, that's helpful. But the other thing I'd love to get your perspective of is one thing I, I certainly one trait of uh, of lawyers is typically they don't like to be left behind. -hmm. And if they can see that their, let's say, their colleagues are starting to work in a particular way, which is delivering particular benefits, one thing I sometimes say, lawyers love to be first to be second. So (laughs) if they've had a bit of a pathway carved out for them, then they're absolutely super keen to make sure that they can they can learn from that and that they're certainly they're they're not being left behind. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that kind of um, attribute and being able to um, leverage that kind of attribute in the team. is that Does that resonate or, or, or not?
1: Yes, it absolutely does resonate in um, a few ways. One, I think because lawyers aren't typically interested in being first movers. Correct. <laughs> and so as a result, you have to start, similar to my earlier comment, is you want to start in safe places when you're trying to drive change. Yep or when you're trying to even identify change agents in the organization because people don't want to be bold and make high risk decisions in the legal field, quite frankly. So it really is about being balanced. And I think it's also about Looking at opportunities, but still doing it in a way that's very measured, because at the yep. same time, the business also doesn't want us to be coming up with a lot of creative things because we still have a job that we're, we need yep. to do and it needs to be trusted. So I, I, I think just being more thoughtful about now, what are the ways that legal as a function, and lawyers as individuals can drive value in a differentiated way. It's about providing legal solutions to business problems, and oftentimes those solutions are also grounded in information and precedent. So when you're able to bring beyond just these are prior legal decisions on the merit, But also, this is now, these are the examples of institutionally within the organization where we've seen these types of things either occur before, lessons learned, things that happened in the past that we don't want to repeat, even data as it relates to different, let's say, contracting strategies of certain clients where you're able to say, this is how I could expect that they might engage on this particular issue because this is what we've done in the last 17 agreements around the world. So it's about... Adding incremental value to the legal advice and guidance and perspective that you're giving, but doing it in a way that still, though, you're managing associated risk and you're not being too creative.
0: Yeah. Now, sticking to the topic of team motivating and the hopes that you talked about, mm-hmm. t- tell me what what are some of the strategies that um, that that you apply to. To essentially get the best out of the team, to, to hire, to motivate, to create an environment of both safety but growth. Any particular things that you want to call out that Regina in your career you've seen really you, you've seen work well and that you try to replicate in your team?
1: So one is I never want to ask someone to do something that I'm not willing to do. Yep. Meaning I think we have to as leaders be responsible and accountable for being able to lead, but also being understanding of just the reality of what you're asking people to do, first of all. So that means practicing empathy is a really important trait. And it's even if it's just empathy to the degree of understanding that they're working until 2 AM on some issue or project. So maybe the next morning you need to bring coffee or just, just taking note of being a leader that is willing to leave, but also willing to ro- roll up their sleeves and, and work with them yeah. side by side on issues. I also think it's how you engage, where recognizing that there's a human element to everything that we do, and we're dealing with other people in tough situations. As a lawyer, it's unfortunate, but we're not often dealing with good news. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that there is a, a It's challenging in jobs like ours in times like these. And I think it has really even helped make sure that I fundamentally pay attention to the personal challenges that lawyers are having yeah. on the day to day and making sure that I'm not asking too much. I'm not pushing too hard because it's easy for us to do, to, you know, want to do more, drive more, deliver more. Cause we're all strapped on resources, tight on time and overloaded. Yeah. So I, I think that's fundamental. Secondly though is I made the earlier comment about how I feel I should have the, mentality that I work for the team, they don't work for me. So if we work together, we're able to make each other look good. So I'm not trying to get the credit for anyone's work that they've done, especially if they've put in a lot of time and energy. I don't want them to do, I'll just say the PowerPoint deck that I'm going to deliver and not give them credit. So it's about recognizing that team means something and that we're in this together. And so the more I can give credit and help position other people to be successful, and they can see now how my support for them helps to drive their success, then guess what? They're going to be interested in making sure they do things to help drive my success too. So we're in this together. So I think that's one fundamental thing. And secondly, I think that we all have to be responsible for our own careers because being a good leader is not just about giving people good high fives and great jobs and all and showing empathy. It's also about being honest with people. And if someone's not performing, if the work quality or caliber of the work wasn't there, then that's a whole nother conversation, but it needs to be a transparent one where you think that my leader is going to give me, tell me the truth. Yeah. But do it in a way that's respectful and where they're also at the same time positioning me to grow and improve. So I feel like if you can really address both sides of that coin where you still allow the person to have dignity, respect, and know that you genuinely want them to succeed, everything else will work out.
0: Yeah. Look, I think that being able to have your team members genuinely believe that they have white space to growing that they are getting credit even if all of the credit so even if it should be a bit more weighted towards you but you're pushing it towards it i mean that is so empowering i think and that and the kind of um, energy that provides and 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 really also the uh, the payback i think that you get that you personally get and uh, and the organization gets for people actually feeling being placed in that position where they are getting credit Right, um, and that uh, I always talk about making sure that the ego steps back, and that you're putting you know, you're putting others um, in the limelight and giving them an opportunity. I, I think that the, the more you can do that and bake that into the, the way you lead, uh, I, I think the, the more successful leader
1: um, yep.
0: you're, you're going to be. Now, Regina, so before you get to Baker Hughes, I want to step back a little bit. So I think you joined there in April. 2020. So you chose the peak of the pandemic to, to start a new position. So I'll come back to that. But before you get there, huh? can you highlight any particular kind of key or pivotal moments in your own career that kind of set you on a path before you get to, to Baker Hughes? Are there, are there any kind of standout um, points, whether it's a, a it's a mentoring point or a, um, a aha moment for you?
1: so there are so many yeah there's one though that i'll be honest sticks out and throughout my entire career it's the one um situation where i think i learned the most and i think it shaped me when it comes to how i show up and that was in 2001 I'm pretty sure it was 2001 when I was working for a company called Dynegy. Yep. And I had started, this was my first job after law school. And I actually started in IT because yep. this is maybe too much information, but they paid more if I started in IT than if I started in the legal department. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go work in this IT job that happened to have Some legal overlap, but it was mostly technology. And I was over the project that was an electronic commerce project, and I was presenting to the board of directors. And I presented to the board on this project because I was the project lead. And um, shortly thereafter, literally like within days, I was asked to be the chief of staff for the CEO, for our chairman and CEO at the time.
0: After this – after this single presentation to the board, mm-hmm.
1: Had, yep. I, little did I know. But during that meeting, they were actually trying to identify an internal candidate to serve as the chief of staff for the CEO. And I guess someone said, "Hey, what about that little sharp lady that just came?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> I um, love I, that story. Yep, yeah. Yeah,
1: and I was young as well. Um, yeah, I was young. I think I might have been thirty-ish. 31 yep. or something. Yeah. Um, yep. And the reason this and this, this, so wait, let me go back. So I had, this had happened. I had gotten this job maybe a couple years prior. Okay. But 2001 was a trigger ring point in my career because that was also the year where Dynagy attempted to buy Enron. Right. And um, any of you that know the Enron yes. story, well, I always say that I got a front row seat. Because being the chief of staff at the time for the chairman and CEO, and it sounds like a big job, but I'll be honest, it wasn't. It was a job where I was the point person for the CEO on many of some of the significant activities. I bought the corporate jets, but I also picked the menu for the board meeting. So there were, it was literally kind of a job where you could. Exposure, you participate on key things. So I wasn't involved in any of the really deep projects, one of which was the one that got them in a bit of trouble later. But long story short, I got to see the, from the very beginning, when we announced that we were purchasing our number one rival in Ron, where there's champagne and chocolates and strawberries in the boardroom till not too long after where our stock tanked within 48 hours, like from $50 to 50 cent. And we were on the brink of bankruptcy. And it was clear that Enron's financial records were not understandable by many of the leadership. And it was clear that at this point, this deal was unraveling really fast. Dynegy then pulled out of the uh, merger for obvious reasons, and that caused, that was one of the triggering events that led Enron into bankruptcy. Shortly after, the Enron CEO and Jeff, Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay were subsequently indicted. Many of the individuals that had been involved at different points ended up being inv- indicted. There were people that I knew that were indicted. There were people that lost their savings And really a lot of lives were negatively impacted. And that was a real event for a lot of people. It wasn't just about some of the leaders with Enron that had done wrong, but people's lives, livelihoods were shaken forever. And the one thing I learned the most was the value of integrity. Yeah. Because small decisions impacted Signif- a significant amount of people in, sig- in fundamental ways forever. Yep. And many of those decisions, I remember a quote that Jeff Skilling made that really resonated with me, where he said, I was just trying to do the right thing and the best thing for the company. And if you think about that fundamental tenet of trying to drive growth, Trying to be number one and be competitive and push the envelope, which was something Enron was known for it was OK until it wasn't OK. Yeah. And um, there was a gentleman that worked with me at Dynergy. His name was Jamie Olis, and he ended up being criminally indicted and convicted and was sentenced to 24 years in prison. And I think he served I don't remember how many he served but it taught he was an accountant and a lawyer. And he was held to a standard, an ethical standard, where he basically should have known that some of the things that were being done in a secondary project that Dindyji had actually undertaken were pushing the envelope too far. Yeah. And that concept of maybe it wasn't actually wrong at the time, but you should have known that principally it wasn't yeah. right because you're a legal trained professional. That stuck with me, and it, it helped me understand at a very young age that integrity is something that's real, transparency is important, and quite frankly, in spite of the fact that your intention may be to do the right thing, that ultimately, meaning the right thing for, let's say, the shareholders or the bottom line, ultimately, you need to have a moral compass that guides you. And you need to be focused on making the right decisions. And sometimes that means consulting with others. Sometimes you have to have balanced risk, but at all times you have to have accountability for your actions. So I'd say that was the biggest lesson I've learned throughout my career. And luckily for me, I was young enough and in a role where it wasn't significant enough that I didn't get caught up in any of the issues because I wasn't making decisions. But even still, it was a great learning lesson
0: well i mean well wow, that's a really powerful story regina of course and that the moral compass you talk about integrity i take it that is that is essentially the lens that you view every problem with right now and making sure that um i mean the decisions back in the early 2000s or late 1990s that kind of might be pushing it but didn't mm-hmm. if you don't have that lens and just saying actually, why are we doing what we're doing? Mm-hmm. And if I put aside all of the kind of the the complicated regulatory regime, which is sometimes trying to navigate, you know, right. trying to step back and understand why am I doing this mm-hmm. and then judging it against that moral compass or however you frame that question, is this the right thing to be doing? Right. I just think that is an incredible, incredibly powerful and important lens to view... Yeah. Everything that you do, every decision that you make, making sure whether they call it the smell test or whatever it is, it, it um, I can see how that can be a kind of a guidepost uh, for you in your decisions.
1: And, and I, another thing is, little decisions matter, and yeah. it's hard. At certain levels because there's so much information that you're having to funnel yeah. through and filter through and make the right decision no one is perfect and everything no. is about risk but it, it translates for me all the way down to that little decision where let's say you're going to to a dinner and you've got another person with you and let's say the whole dinner is 50 bucks in the whole scheme yeah. of things so what's wrong with putting the whole 50 bucks even if it was a personal friend for yeah. the expense report that's what's wrong with it the fact that you even had to think about it and was was the extra 50 bucks worth it it's about make if you make the right decisions when it's the small things it'll be a lot easier for you to make the right ones when the big ones come at issue
0: yep fantastic okay regina so it's april 2020 you figure it's the right time, peak pandemic, to take on a new job and join Baker Hughes as the Chief Legal Officer. Mm-hmm. Lord knows what were you thinking at the time, but I'd love to know, well, what were you thinking at the time? And tell me about the first 100 days or so um, and how you identified what the priorities are and how I'm going to wrap my arms around um, uh, what what I need to do.
1: Okay. Um, well, what I was thinking, I... <laughs> I don't know that I could answer that. I, I I'll tell you what what my one of my drivers was. Yep. Um, was i I'm super impressed and I am super committed and I believe in the strategy of Baker Hughes. So yep. I've worked in the oil and gas industry for a long time, okay? And fossil fuels, you can look at both sides of that coin because it's yep. a necessary resource yep. for our current infrastructure. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for us to still move forward in a way where we can drive impactful change in a meaningful way in relation to our climate, okay? And so Baker Hughes has an absolute commitment to the energy transition and taking energy forward faster. And we have to have that balance between continuing to support the needs of our current infrastructure, but also being targeted and specific about being accountable for helping to drive now new technologies forward so that we can shift and transition away from the traditional and move into more meaningful uh, utilization of things like hydrogen and greener, cleaner energy and bring our clients along with us because we are a services company in many instances and we're bringing new technology, which I love. So moving to Baker Hughes was really grounded in the fact that I thought the strategy was amazing and compelling, and I have a sincere belief and um, had a desire to work with Lorenzo Simonelli because I think he's amazing, and he's smart, and he's our CEO, and I believe in that. So for me, a fundamental, decision, fundamental part of the decision was working for a company where I believe in their strategy, and I want to be a part of it. Now, moving during COVID, I actually don't know what I was thinking because it really just happened yeah. to where COVID wasn't as big as it was. Yeah. I mean, it was just starting.
0: Just starting, of course. It was yeah. something
1: like... you were reading about. But then all of a sudden, yeah. now, right before I joined, now we're in lockdown. So I joined Baker Hughes. And for the first 18 months, I was literally keeping a list of people I met in person and I could not get past 21. Yeah. And that included really just anyone in the company that I even just saw them in the hallway. I got past 21. It was probably from the September. No, it might have been July, August, September Q3 timeframe where I then started really meeting more people because some of the rules started being more relaxed and people would come into the office. And I actually made my first business trip three weeks ago. So during this time period, it really has challenged me to get to know and build relationships with people in very different ways. Now, there's a few silver linings, though. The silver lining is I got to spend way more time with Lorenzo Simonelli than I ever would have, because there were many times when there were like five people in the office, and he would be one of them, uh, because he couldn't travel either. But the other silver lining was that I got to meet people in their homes. And that's actually a different relationship and you get to meet their children and you get to meet their dogs and you get to see what types of art they have in the background. And there's one gentleman I work with and he collects hats and I got to see his hat collection and you get to see their book collections and what they read and what they watch on TV and whether they take walks. And so It introduces you to a side of many people that, quite frankly, in a purely professional environment, you would not have had the opportunity to know. It still is a challenge when you're really trying to get involved in tough conversations and weigh in on tough issues and get people to trust you because you know what you're talking about when they actually have never met you. So it's a balance, but it's been um, a really good experience to learn um, to work in an environment. And I don't know that industry will ever go back to the way it was hundred percent. So to, yeah, I, to I learn, that's where, exactly right. yeah. And that's where kind of my love of technology comes into place too, because you have to be agile, you have to be adaptable and you have to be willing to embrace now the power of what technology can bring. And I think COVID has really helped accelerate now possibilities when it comes to even lawyers thinking yep. about how they can use technology more.
0: So so tell me, how did you land on your top two or three priorities Mm -hmm. when you started and after your first, um, let's say, 100 days or a bit more than that? And I'd be interested to know if you can share those with us. That'd be great. And what are they today? Have they changed today, um, given that you're getting close to 18 months into the role?
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. So I would say my top I'll stick to three priorities. Yep. And they're not all necessarily just driven by legal issues. It's more so yep. driven by what I'll call legal necessities, all right, yep. which is what are the things that the business needs the legal department to deliver in the form of capabilities for the company? Because these are critical times. When you think about legal and the role of lawyers, it's no longer, even though part of our role still is to look at an issue, look at the law, look at precedent and translate it back to, now this is most likely how what the outcome would look like, this is what your risk barometer looks like, and this is what our range of exposure looks like, and now we can kind of guide. Or looking at, well, this is what the law says, and this is compliant, this is not compliant, so we're gonna do compliant. What's happened during COVID is everything's changed. And the expectations have changed, the stakeholders have changed, the laws and regulations are developing, but on many, there's an expectation that you're gonna start complying even before the law is fully shaped and developed. And when we look at how things are developing in ESG and sustainability and which standard are you gonna pick and how are you going to publicly state your commitments and your goals, all of that is really built more on principles. And there's a degree of now, companies have to be able to come in and put a stake in the ground and say I'm going to commit to this. And when they commit to it, you don't always know all of the variables that will in play, that will be in play. Ie, how are the regulations going to be shaped? How is legislation going to be shaped? What is the outcome going to look like from an economic perspective? Cuz now you can't use the past to project the history even with market fundamentals. So as a result, lawyers are having to come in and advise on potential outcomes based on information that they have available today. Yep. And you can't just rely on trends because the rules of the past may not be the same, whether it's tax laws or whether it's as it relates to traditional energy regulations or whether it's relating to disclosures or climate or your constituents, your community involvement and engagement. So all of that's changing in parallel. So it requires people who can think, people who can assess, and people who can actually give good advice that can be trusted and balance a lot of dynamics at the same time, Um, many of which are legal, but it's not just about what happened in the past. It's about what's developing right now and how we're Engaging in a meaningful way on some of the commitments that we make, just on a day-to-day basis,
0: and committing to a course too before the the let's say the regulatory environment has actually played out and landed. That must be a challenge because you must be really forecasting, if you, to some degree, what we think it's going to look like. So we've got to start taking action now to either be ready. For what it does look like, or, or to set ourselves on a path to make sure that um, we're, we're even going to be doing better than whatever the the legal environment or the regulatory environment is going to ask us to be committing to. So that must be that there must that must be quite challenging to do that when there's that level of uncertainty.
1: Yeah, it is to a degree. And what do I mean when I say that? If I just use the Baker Hughes content, context, yeah. uh, because. You can call it, we can call it ESG today, but a year ago when I joined Baker Hughes, Baker Hughes has always had what we refer to as people, planet, and principles. And we have commitments in relation to how we want to lead when it comes to people, how we want to show up, and how we want to make sure that we're committed when it comes to planet, and how we want to behave and engage, and what our core principles are. We also have four values, lead, care, grow, and collaborate. That didn't change because the regulatory expectations are continuing to develop. We've still had those commitments. What I think it does change is now your level of engagement with your various stakeholders to make sure you're meeting their expectations and your commitments are aligned with their expectations in parallel with the execution of your business strategy. So it does get more complicated. And you do want to lead with integrity and the, and the spirit of compliance as well. But you need to do it for reasons beyond compliance. Yeah. It needs to be because it aligns with your principles and your principles, goals yeah. and you're holding people accountable and all of those things. So I think within the current environment, it's made it a bit more challenging to anticipate sometimes changing expectations and how you need to communicate and disclose your progression against your principles but and that's kind of the hard part but at the end of the day your actions need to support your words Yep. and that's a pretty fundamental principle
0: yeah and it must provide you certainly with a level of comfort to see see trends that might be happening around let's say esg and say well actually we're already doing that we might have named it Differently, we might have right. talked about um, people, planet, and principles, it, but but in fact, it's already aligned. It's already part of the culture, and there are already um, frameworks and steps we're taking mm-hmm. in place, which are entirely consistent with the trends that we're seeing. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Principles lead. Yeah care, grow, collaborate. You can translate that back to diversity, equity and inclusion. You can translate it back to climate. You can translate it back to shareholder responsibility and accountability or community investments. All of those things are still in play. It's just now there's new nomenclatures involved and there's new expectations as it relates to how you disclose and when you disclose and what data needs to be demonstrated as part of those commitments. And that's where I think it gets really nuanced and and important that you're able to have good leaders and experts to advise you on how to navigate through all of the varying environments right now with the different standards being set, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And Regina, if you were to project out 12, 24 months and even further in the future and the kind, and the role of a general counsel, how is it going to change? How is it going to continue? What are the challenges that are going to come up that perhaps we haven't seen? What, what do you see in the future? And what are the kind of skills you think that. That is going to be required at the legal leadership level.
1: So the to, first to, thing to I think about is challenges. just the fact that the job itself is hard. So if anyone comes in and they think, <laughs> if you come yeah. in and you think, this oh, I just gonna, I'm gonna have it all figured <laughs> yeah. out, that's probably your first mistake. And recognize that it's a continuous yeah. learning and yep. opportunity, and it's a continuing obligation to make sure that you are helping. To set that moral compass for the company, and and you're accountable to not just the leadership team, but to the board of directors, to your investors, to making sure that we are leading from the front, okay. And that means you have that means starting with what I think was the were the fundamentals and the price of admission before, which is complying with the law. That's the starting point, okay having compliant policies and procedures and practices, yeah. that's the starting point. It's now how you build on that and how you integrate legal and risk decision-making and integrity in the business strategy, all right? So making sure the strategic thinkers, the business development teams, the sales and marketing teams, they are—they need to be an extension of the legal department. If lawyers, if hiring good lawyers is a company's legal compliance strategy, that's an epic failure from the start. Because lawyers are fundamental to help continue to drive things yeah. and be the experts, but at the end of the day, the business decisions are made at the coal face. Risks are taken by other people within the organization, so we have to have the right appetite around risk. You have to have people that understand the importance of good decision making on solid principles at the lowest level of the organization. And so, you know, you've probably heard concepts like tone from the top, tone from the middle, all of those things. It's setting tone at every levels, but doing it yep. in a way that is translatable to the lowest level person in your organization, because they're representing you when they're out in the field or when they're out on social media, etc. So I think being a general counsel really comes with a heavy bar Because you really need to look at your role as not just providing legal advice and not just having good law firm partners, but making sure the core, those real legal principles and fundamentals and decision making and principles of integrity and that moral compass is understood and complied with across the board. And that when people see something, They say something. That's not just an engineering and safety term. That's a real-life term, which is if something's not working and it's broken, individuals in the organisation need to feel accountable for raising issues and concerns so that someone can address that. Because if you allow something to fester and people don't feel like it's their job to speak up, then that is a failure in the process as well and in the fabric.
0: Yep, their job to speak up and that the environment and I've talked about this quite Mm -hmm. a bit, the environment is a really safe one to be able to call out where the behaviours aren't lining up. All well and good to set the principles and set Mm -hmm. the cultural handbook, but if you haven't created an environment where it's absolutely safe to raise Mm -hmm. where there's a deviation, where something's not quite right, then there's a mismatch and Mm -hmm. you don't say what you do. And also, Regina, I mean, I love you talked about um, essentially that burden of setting the moral compass for the company, which I love. Last week's episode of speaking to um, Jennifer Womatt and she's the uh, Chief Legal Officer Mm -hmm. um, at NXP NXP Semiconductors. She talked about being um, the corporate conscience, that the legal department has that. So so a real consistent theme there. And that, that is a heavy burden, but you're absolutely right. If you, as the... Most senior legal officer can ensure that that is permeated. However, that moral compass is set, it's permeated throughout the entire organisation. That is certainly a goal worth aiming for because I can, because you're absolutely right. It's got to be the people at the call phase, It's got to be the decision makers, so that everyone conducts it themselves in a way which is consistent with that moral compass that you've set. Yeah, no, I really like that. Talked a lot. Rajiv, we talked about D&I too. You've touched upon that. I know that's dear to your heart. Any particular DEI initiatives in the legal department or that you're uh, particularly proud of um, that you want to call out?
1: So I'm proud of a lot when it comes yep. to DEI in our legal department. We're all on a journey. And, um, you know, you don't just do D and do diverse. You don't just do it. You don't just get it done either. It's a constant journey to make sure that we're continuing to mature. So if you ask me, what am I most proud of? I think there's a couple of things. One is the fact that others in the organization step up. And they want it to be a priority. It's not just me. I I think if you look at me, you can say there's obvious reasons why it would be important to me. All right, I'm female. I'm African-American. But if if I have a counterpart that really doesn't have a reason to care about it other than they do care, to me, that's meaningful. So to see the members of the legal team drive diversity because they believe in it. Is fundamentally the thing that I'm most proud of because that means it's genuine and it's authentic. Okay. The second thing that I'm proud of is many of the law firms because they too have shown up with a very genuine desire to make change and embrace change in an area that I think is probably a big struggle for them because they have traditional footprints that aren't very diverse. Okay. Whether it's by design or not, that's a whole nother conversation for another day, quite frankly, but the recognition that they have to really want to make meaningful change is um, very impactful to me when I get to see it. And it's not just in, Oh, we want to have more associate hiring. It's looking at across all of the different layers and levels. How can we partner with companies to help extend our diversity reach? How can we make sure we have teams that reflect the composition of the planet, how can we make sure that we lean yep. in to diversity, equity, and inclusiveness at all levels? That too gets hard. And so, it, cause it's not just about hiring. If you stop at recruiting and hiring, it's not a sincere effort. So to see the fulsome, yep. um, strategic, activities that are occurring are nice to see. But but really, the thing that makes me proudest is when I see allies that step up and they partner with you. Because personally, I think it's a lot more meaningful for someone that doesn't look like me or or that doesn't have diversity at the forefront because they need it, yeah. but they believe in it. That, to me, is the beauty of um, what I'm seeing yeah. in members of my own legal team, and I, I appreciate and respect that.
0: Regina, I'm going to round out with some favorite questions, if I can, before we close up. Advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self?
1: That's a hard one. I think I would say that I I should, and it's interesting because it's advice someone gave me when I was 25 too, <laughs> is that you need to step out and be bold but be yeah. authentic. And I say that because as a woman and as an African-American woman as well, when I was young, I used to think that if you worked hard, that you then would get rewarded, whether it's through promotions, et cetera. And my first, not my first, but one of my very first leaders told me, hey, you need to be bold. You need to be your genuine self, but if you're interested in an opportunity, you need to raise your hand and say, and if you're interested in, a raise or a merit or whatever. You need to do the work, but you also need to make sure it's visible and people understand what you're working, what you're doing. You need to own your brand and make sure that others see the value that you bring because then they want you on their team. Then they want to invest in you. And then they actually understand that there's a payoff for having you as a member of the team or as counsel around their table or as a part of their project. So for me, the be bold and be authentic was probably some of the best advice I've gotten. Because if you leave your true self behind as part of that process, then at some point they find out that that's yep. really not you that they've been yep. working
0: with. Yeah. And taking ownership of what you said, your brand, yeah. doing right. that nice and early, believing you've actually got one. <laughs> uh, because I think in those early days you, you don't really understand. Right. Um, and you don't understand how your actions when you're early can Leave. Well, I call. I talk about leaving footprints. The world right. ends up being really small. The older you get, things come <laughs> come round, and actually understanding that you do have a brand, you need to own uh-huh. it. Right. And I love the way you talk about being bold with it, as um, in those early years. I, I think that's fantastic advice.
1: Yeah. I just thank God, Jim, that social media wasn't around. Oh, you
0: I tell me like... about it, <laughs> <laughs> Regina. You t- that's yeah. right. Because some of those footprints, which and I and can't you can't get them
1: order. back. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh,
0: the the sanders covered some of those, and that's great. But absolutely, the world is nowhere near as forgiving. And I think that's—I mean—that's another topic. I think that there's some real. I think that's a real—that's a disadvantage, and I think that's a problem for us right now. That the world is can be so unforgiving Mm -hmm. because you need forgiveness in those early years because you're finding your way. You're not getting that best advice. You're stumbling through. Sometimes you're making poor decisions, not because you're a bad person, because you just haven't had the guidance and the teachings, the mentors, whatever it might be. So I do think today the world can be a really tough place and I hope there's a, I've got to say, I hope there's a bit of a rebalance where there is some kind of tolerance and forgiveness um, for for the the early part of your career.
1: Yeah, I agree. The other thing is I could always trust that even if they don't forgive me, at some point they're gonna forget. And these days, it just kind of keeps, it's still out there. And so social media doesn't go away. And so that forgetfulness, just there's some reminders that come back now about something you did in college. And luckily, my friends are all old enough now where they forgot,
0: knock on wood. Um, Two more questions. Um, Advice, sorry, I've asked for that one. What have you spent too much time worrying about in the past that on reflection... Was time wasted, time not well spent?
1: I'd say perception.
0: Worried Learned about what people- what
1: someone thought yeah, of you.
0: Yeah, or what someone thinks about you.
1: What someone thinks about you, what someone thinks about how you engage, what someone thinks about what you wear, or what you're gonna wear, or honestly, that's noise. And yeah. uh, there's too many real things to think about. Like if you're going into a meeting, you need to be, uh, you, you do not need to be conscientious of what you yep. wear and how you show up and your image and perception. But you don't need to really worry about it if you're doing the right things, if you're prepared, if you're focused, and if you're invested in the right outcomes. And and I am I worry a lot about stuff that at the end of the day really shouldn't matter. Yeah. And my boss still tells me about it today and he's like, dude, you need to worry less about <laughs> that because I'll, I'll raise something that the meeting was three hours ago and I'll be like do you think it was okay when I, and he's like, seriously, you're still thinking about that. So, you know, I think some of it is is just our psyche, but I think worry less about simple things that really don't matter in the whole scheme of things.
0: Yeah. Not, not too many people say I should have worried a bit more um, (laughs) (laughs) in the past. Um, And uh, anything that's keeping you up at night now? Everything. Yeah.
1: Um, We're in a world where our challenges are real. And so it's unfortunate that I can't come up with one thing, but I think you can pretty much pick any category, whether it's social, it's nationalization, it's regulatory, it's increased pressure, even on kind of the, even on the industry that I'm in, it's just a lot. And um, the thing that hurts me the most is just kind of what you were alluding about as well. It's just, there's a side of humanity that I miss. And also just graciousness and caring. And sometimes it's just hard to find the right level of empathy and just care in the environment. I can't really explain it, but I, I don't like to see conflict on amongst people. I like to see collaboration and alignment and community. And and sometimes it's hard Because there's a lot of that that goes out of the window, again, I think some with social media and with politics and all of that.
0: Yeah, It's uh, hate.
1: That's what I don't like is hate.
0: And and look, the last, there's no doubt the last 18 months hasn't helped at all because when you are also distant, physically remote, it is much easier. Frankly, it's much easier to hate. Mm -hmm. It's much easier... To come back with a short, nasty comment on social media because you haven't made, you haven't understood, you don't understand the, the person or the people, the community you're, um, you've got a dialogue with. And I think that, I mean, I think the last 18 months has been really hard. And I think there's a lot of repair work. Right. And I think the sooner that we, we start the journey of actually trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes, T- taking the time to actually be with people, with communities and and start rebuilding empathy, I think we need that desperately.
1: <laughs> yep, um, I do. And it's, yeah. it's because mean and hate, I mean, it's just right now, it can be a tough environment. And sometimes I just don't engage in a lot of things yeah. with social media anymore because, one, you don't want to be misinterpreted, yep. and, two, you don't want to be influenced either through some of the negativity that shows up.
0: And does it worry when you think about, um, I, I know you've got two teenage mm-hmm. boys thinking about the, and I've got three kids, thinking about the future mm-hmm. for them and what does it look like for them? And mm-hmm. what can we be doing to be shifting back to a more tolerant and empathetic world to live in? Is that something which, which you think about too?
1: So, you know, one of the things that worries me the most about the future. When I was young, movies would give me a reflection on what was possible. You know, it would be movies like Star Trek and yep. and I, I see examples in real life today of things that if you watch, I'll just pick Star Trek. Yeah. Or, I mean, those were things where there was innovation and there was excitement and amazement. Now, if you watch the movies of the future, It's not a good look between zombies and climate and it's just really scary. And so if that is what the future is going to be like for my children, I really hope that space travel works out (laughs) because at the rate they're going, they're going to be living somewhere isolated on a planet. Somewhere because so, so I think it it really underscores the importance of really having conviction on things that matter, and uh, that includes being empathetic, and that includes caring for humanity, Mm. and that includes making sure we're investing in the things today to protect the futures of tomorrow.
0: Regina, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you tonight today i've had a fantastic time thank you so much for joining me
1: likewise jim it's been an equal pleasure for me and thank you for your patience and just for the dialogue it's been great talking it was to an you.
0: absolute blast thanks very much regina bye-bye for now
1: thank you
0: thank you listeners for tuning into the show for more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player if you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show please connect with me jim the host of the show via email jim at pursuit p-e-r-s-u-i-t dot com we'd love to hear from you